Hello everybody, it's Pastor Paul. It is here on Friday morning, April 23rd, 2021. And we are continuing our journey through the book of Exodus. And we are in Exodus chapter 32. And we've been, this is gonna be, a, this is a three-parter on this very, very infamous story of the golden calf. And, and most of you are, are familiar with the narrative Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to meet with God. He is receiving um, the, the law of God, um, the seal of the covenant um, that's going to guide and regulate his relationship with his people, the Israelites. And Moses is gone 40 days. And during this time, seemingly, the people grow impatient. They grow bored. They grow anxious. Um, um, that they have not heard from Moses and thus have not, quote unquote, heard from God. And, and all along the way, of course, God had been with the people. He still was with the people, but he had been with them visibly, right? With, with the, the pillar of fire at night and the cloud and the day and, and encamping with them. But here, um, they, you know, God has gone radio silent um, and, and when they think about their religious experience in, in light of where they came from, pagan uh, Egypt, people um, worshipped um, gods that they represented by idols. Okay, well, and there was obviously as a polytheistic culture, there were multiple gods and multiple idols. And God had given the Israelites specific commands, first of all, in the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, You'll have no other gods before me. In other words, I'm the only God. But number two, you shall have before me no graven idols or images. And there God is speaking specifically about how they are to worship him. They're not, they can't just come to God in any old way. They, they have to come to God and worship him in light of who he is and who he's revealed himself. And God said, you don't make any idols or physical representations of me. Because God knows the propensity of the human heart that so quickly icons and statues and such can, can become substitutes. We can begin to revere holy places or holy cathedrals or relics of saints or uh, symbols and signs as the thing that's holy. When, when in reality, they're just pointing to the thing that's holy. And, and so this was God's heart towards the people of Israel. They wouldn't be led away by idolatry. They would worship God as he's revealed himself, but yet they convince Aaron to construct a golden calf. And this wasn't meant to say that, that they were no longer worshiping God, but they were just worshiping God um, with some of the pagan imagery um, of the day. And so this calf, of course, this golden calf was a sign of, uh, in their, from the culture they came from, Egypt, a bull of power and might and authority and those sorts of things. And, and they were worshiping um, God through this calf. And so Moses comes down, and this is what we saw in part two, and um, judges the people of Israel um, in a pretty specific, powerful way. They end up putting to death 3,000 of the instigators of this rebellion. And he, um, God instructs Moses to grind up the golden calf and put it in the drinking water of the people so that when they drink this water, the, this idolatry will be literally expelled from their bodies, good for, uh, no good for anything else from that day forward. And we talked about this idea that 
if this idea of, of God bringing judgment or wrath upon someone, if this offends us or offends our modern sensibilities, it might say more about how we view God or how lowly we view the holiness of God and how much we esteem our own goodness. When in reality, the Bible presents things as just the opposite. It is God who's holy. It's we are not. And, and if we truly, truly understood the holiness of God, the way God does, and our own sinfulness the way God does, then these passages in the Old Testament about people dying and judgment coming would not seem so foreign to us at all. In fact, they would seem um, very appropriate. Well, we left off this last time where judgment has fallen on the people of God, but yet in the midst of it, we find the gospel, we find hope, we find grace. And I want to highlight a couple of these instances where where we see this showing up um, and this is sort of the the gospel according to Moses so when we go back to verse 7 after Moses has come down um, we, we, we we hear this and the Lord said to Moses go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. So, so what we see here is God, um, and this is sort of in the Hebrew, uh, kind of a rhetorical device, okay? He, he's, he's, he's drawing Moses in to take a look at the condition of the people, and he's sort of articulating to Moses what these people deserve. He's, he's, he's articulating what it is that um, is worthy of his righteous wrath and indignation against them. And he's, he's, he's inviting Moses into this, and Moses does step into this, and look what Moses says in verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken, bringing on his people. So here is Moses, and he is coming before God and he is begging for mercy on behalf of the people. And the way he does this is that he is reminding God of God's promises. He's reminding God of, God's, of his faithfulness. He's reminding God that God's glory is at stake here. He, he's, he's imploring. In fact, that's the word here in the Hebrew in verse 11. He, he's beseeching God. He's saying, listen, God, if you just wipe these people out, what will the people in Egypt think? Um, what, what what sort of statement is this going to make to the nations about who you are and about your love and care for your 
people. And it says in verse 14 that the Lord relented. So, so what, what is, what, what, what's going on here? Well, this is showing us very clearly, right, that, that not only does Israel need the blood offerings and the sacrifices made by the Levitical priesthood to, to propitiate the wrath of God, but they, in fact, need a mediator. They need an intercessor. They need someone who's going to come before God and plead their case. They need an advocate. And, and this is what we find Moses doing. Now, this is not the only time he does this in this passage. If you go back down to um, verse 30, all right, listen, listen to the second episode of intercession. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. Um, and so, actually, let me read two more verses. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. And so um, this is sort of um, hyperbole um, when Moses is saying, hey, let, let, let me be struck down and removed um, from, from, from your memory um, on their behalf. Um, we, we hear Paul say the same thing in Romans 9, I wish myself accursed. It's sort of metaphorical language, but it does show the heart of Moses on behalf of the people. And God is very clear, okay, in saying, and now he has already once relented, okay, of the disaster that was going to befall the people. But he says, nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon him. And he's talking about the discipline that he brings to them through this plague, which we talked about yesterday. But God doesn't utterly obliterate them, right? Um, God, again, relents from this disaster. And once again, we are left with the distinct impression that, Mo that Israel is in great need of a mediator and that the spiritual lives of this sinful, hard-hearted people are sort of on the brink at any given point in time. Now, later in Deuteronomy, we find out that Moses prophesies that there is going to be a prophet that comes after him that's going to be greater than Moses, than greater than himself, who's going to be a permanent prophet, a permanent leader. And when you put these things together, it's, it's clear that the people of Israel were going to grow into the expectation that they needed someone greater than Moses, okay, greater than David, greater than Abraham, greater than the Levitical priesthood, who would come and would remedy their greatest problem. Now, their greatest problem, and the Jews in the, in the New Testament thought their greatest problem was Roman occupation, was physical oppression. But when you read the Old Testament and the prophets, it's very clear Israel's greatest problem. It was their hearts. It was their wandering eyes. It was their wandering souls. And of course, this is our greatest problem. We think the thing we need the most oftentimes is some kind of physical deliverance, um, is some sort of physical healing, is some sort of 
provision, uh, financial or otherwise. And those things all have their place and they're all important. But again, we're reminded from a passage like this, the thing that we are in most in need of, okay, is the grace of God. We're in most need uh, for him to wipe away our sins. And we are in most need of an intercessor, okay? Um, and this intercessor, the writer of Hebrews tells us, he is before the throne making our case to God. He's presenting up his own blood to God to say, I have died for my people and my blood um, propitiates your wrath. My blood is the atonement for their sin. But interestingly, 1 John, and we're going to look at this this Sunday night at our sunset services, John says not only is Jesus our intercessor, but Jesus is our advocate. He's not just trying to bring two parties together um, by being a negotiator. Jesus, in fact, is bringing two parties together by pleading our case. He's our criminal defense attorney to God. We are utterly guilty, but Jesus says, Father, I'm offering up to you my righteousness on their behalf because I've taken on their sin um, for them and died in their place and rose again. And that is the powerful, powerful ministry of intercession and advocacy that Jesus points us to, which Exodus 32 is preparing and tilling the soil to remind us that every human being in the history of planet Earth needs an intermediary, an intercessor, an advocate, but only one will do. And that's Jesus Christ. So let's run to him today. All right, folks, that's it for this Friday, April 23rd. First thing Monday morning, we'll be back in Exodus, Exodus 33. But let me pray and hope you guys have a great weekend. Lord, bless us now. Help us to meditate upon this idea that apart from your advocacy, the advocacy of Jesus, we are hopelessly lost and cut off and cursed. But Lord, because of him, we have life, we have forgiveness, we have grace, we have mercy, and we thank you for that in your name.